from deep inside your audio device of choice. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to start this week's edition of this program. No, I already have. By thanking um, super producer and engineer Tom Roach, who was kind enough to step in and produce uh, last week's fairly special edition of the show. Thomas, I owe you. I'm not going to pay you, but I owe you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it's been an exciting week, I think, for all of us who are uh, fans of science. I said science Um, because the former president of the United States continues his long-running physics experiment uh, upon his indictment, of course. The early results showed that uh, among his supporters, they like his indictment. They, they, they like him more for being indicted. I guess they'd love it if he was behind bars. And who wouldn't? But um, he is, in fact, at least seems to me, conducting a long-running physics experiment, the point of which, of course, you cannot repeal the law of gravity, but you can delay its enforcement if you're full enough of hot air. Hello, welcome to the show.
From the Crescent City, New Orleans, Louisiana, and live to much of the country, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we've got the ultra modern neck. No getting oil from the deepest crack. So give the boys just a bit of slack and say a hearty what the frack. At first, they were considered a miracle chemical. Polyfluoroalkyl substances were developed by 3M way back in the 1930s. They could keep scrambled eggs from sticking to a frying pan. Ain't that a miracle? They could make rainwater roll right off a jacket and when added to firefighting foams, put out major fires quickly. But as their use grew, researchers started to link PFAS, PFAs, to a range of health problems, your birth defects, your cancer, and other serious diseases. The chemical doesn't break down, unlike humans, and can persist in water and soil, and even human blood, and has acquired the nickname Forever Chemical. Despite scientific concern, PFAs are still used in everything from waterproof camping gear to fast food containers. Why not camp at the fast food and according to a new study, they are used even more in Texas. A new report by the Physicians for Social Responsibility documents the wide use of PFAs in oil and gas drilling and calls on Texas to follow the lead of some other states in restricting use of the chemicals. 
Well, that's what Texas is good at, is following the lead of other states. The group criticized state regulations that allow energy companies to withhold information on the use of fracking chemicals they deem to be proprietary. That's been standard procedure ever since fracking began. Well, it's proprietary. We put it in. Texas State Representative Penny Shaw Morales fired a bill last month calling for an official state-sponsored study on the use of PFAs in fracking and the potential public exposure through air and water to uh, figure out whether the chemicals should be restricted. PSR's report, that's uh, the state body, highlighted shortcomings in disclosure standards and accountability, particularly in the chain regarding the manufacturing of chemical products that are used in fracking fluids. PFAs are used to reduce friction for drill bits. That's it. That's why they're there. That's why a forever chemical is being rained into the ground. Used to reduce friction, as I say, for drill bits as they move through the ground, says an author on the study. Over the last decade in Texas, oil and gas companies have pumped at least 43,000 pounds of the toxic chemical into more than 1,000 fracked oil and gas wells across the state, according to the study. What was distinctive about Texas, this is a quote, was the staggering volume of PFAs reported in use, says another author of the study. Quoting again, it's far and above what we found in other states, unquote. That's likely because of the scale of fracking in Texas compared to other states, he explained. Although Pennsylvania's in the game, the report on Texas' use of PFAs in wells following similar analyses that Physicians for Social Responsibility has conducted on the use of the forever chemical in states like Ohio and Colorado, as well as nationally. There's no state like Ohio. The studies analyzed publicly available data from Frack Focus. That's a national registry that tracks the chemicals used in fracking. The database is managed by the Groundwater Protection Council. That's a nonprofit made up of state regulatory agencies. The data that um, the state agency in Texas was able to analyze might not reveal the full extent of PFA contamination in Texas, the authors say. Frack Focus is composed of industry-reported data. There are major exceptions in state and federal law that allow companies to withhold certain information by labeling it a trade secret. study found that 6.1 billion pounds of chemicals injected into Texas wells were listed as trade secrets. That's a lot of secrets. Meaning that no one, public health researchers, local environmental regulators, and landowners who might be drinking contaminated water knows what they're being exposed to because it's a trade secret. Industry trade groups like the Texas Oil and Gas Association, really? And the Texas Chemistry Council did not respond to requests seeking comment on the study's findings. Using PFAs in fracking presents several pathways to environmental contamination and human exposure, according to the authors of the study. Fracking fluids are often injected into wastewater wells or stored in pits. I said pits, which have a history of leaking. What doesn't? Come on. And contaminating nearby ground and surface water, which people rely on. PFAs can also go airborne, 
if the substance is pumped into a well and then that well is flared or vented, which is common in Texas. We've talked a little bit about flaring before in this program. That's where um, too much gas comes out of the well compared to oil or what petroleum is going to be used for. And so, uh, you know, rather than siphon off the gas and use it for what gas is used for, they burn it right into the air. Would you like some? In some parts of Texas, like the Fort Worth region, homes, daycares, and businesses are located within a few hundred feet of flaring gas wells. That's why Elon is there. Potentially, people could absorb PFAs through their lungs. Some small molecules could then pass on to the bloodstream, says one of the researchers. Little research has been done on the effects of airborne PFAs, she said. Other states have started to ban the use of PSAs in oil wells altogether, like the Colorado legislature, which passed a law last summer, that will ban PFAs in a variety of uses, including in fracking, starting next year. So get your PFAs while you can. Federal government is also looking to rein in and clean up PFAs in multiple uses. Just a little more of our freedom being taken away, our freedom to breathe in PFAs. What the frack? Um, it's, um, it's just one more reason to move to Texas, ladies and gentlemen. If you were looking for one, aside from a tax break. And now. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart, smart world. Speaking of Elon Musk. Tesla has launched a new product, GigaBeer, spelled B-I-E-R, but meaning beer. What is it? It's a limited edition beer inspired by the Tesla Cybertruck, a vehicle promised in 2019 and not yet on the market. It's selling for the equivalent of $30 a beer. From a fart machine inside Tesla vehicles to flamethrowers, Elon Musk has had plenty of strange ideas. They sounded like jokes, but they eventually became a reality. This is from Electrek.com. Back in uh, 2018, Musk post, uh, poked fun at Tesla haters with an April Fool's joke about the company going bankrupt. As part of the joke, Musk wrote that he was found ga- passed out against a Tesla Model 3 surrounded by, quote, Tesla Kila bottles, unquote. The tracks of dried tears still visible on his cheeks. No, 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 the ones on his face. Later, he said the Tesla actually plans to launch its own tequila. They did it in 2020, selling out in a matter of hours. What was it uh, Barnum said? Tesla wasn't done selling its own alcohol. At the launch of the sorry, the launch of the Gigafactory Berlin project, Musk announced that Tesla would be making its own beer. 
That's, you know, just for the motivation of the workers, don't you think? This week, no, sorry, last week, Tesla officially launched Tesla Gigabeer. This is from the press release released by somebody who's working for Elon Musk, if not Elon Musk himself, because he, he's firing most of the people who work for him. Quote, Tesla Gigabeer is designed to emulate the form of Cybertruck. I'll just interrupt the quote for a moment to remind you, Cybertruck is a vehicle Tesla said it was going to release in 2019. There is, as yet, no sign of it. Back to the press release. While honoring the 500-year tradition of German beer making. Enjoy this limited edition Pilsner-style beer brewed in Berlin with our exclusive strain of Cyberhops and notes of citrus, bergamot, and sweet fruit. Doesn't say what kind of fruit. But that's okay. Each bottle features a seamless glass black sleeve with a glow-in-the-dark giga watermark. That's uh, the end of the press release as far as we know. It is partnering with Cyber Hops to make the beer and another company to distribute it. Tesla is selling a pack of three beers for uh, 89 euros, which is the equivalent of about $30 a beer. Finally, he's figured out a way to make money. It It just took a while to figure out, charge $30 for a beer as Elon. It's really all you need to do. He is a genius after all. Cheers. And now, news of the godly. Officials at the Catholic Shrine in Lourdes are studying what to do with one of the French sanctuary's most famous but now controversial attractions, mosaics by a Jesuit artist who has been sanctioned by the Vatican and his religious order, that's the Jesuits, for sexually, spiritually, and psychologically abusing women. Oops, we put that up there? How did that happen? Oh, my goodness. The Reverend Marco Ivan Rupnik designed the facade of one of the three basilicas at Lourdes with a series of mosaics in 2008 to mark the 150th anniversary of the Marian apparitions that turned the shrine into what, you ask? Into me turning the page, apparently. Here it is. Here it comes. Sorry. Into uh, one of the world's largest pilgrimage pilgrimage sites, that is, attracting around 3 million visitors a year. In December, the Jesuits revealed that Rupnik had been declared excommunicated by the Vatican three years ago for committing one of the worst crimes in church law, using the confessional to absolve a woman with whom he had engaged in sexual activity and had also been accused by nine women of related sexual, spiritual, and psychological misconduct in the 1980s. Marco Ivan Rupnik, spiritual? The Vatican Sex Abuse Office 
which is headed by Jesuits, decided their claims were too old to prosecute. Amid an outcry and testimony from 15 more people, the Jesuits a couple months ago announced a new internal inquiry while toughening sanctions against Rubnik, including preventing him from continuing his artistic activity, since that was presumably where some of the abuse originated. An internationally lauded federation that provides community care for people with intellectual disabilities is grappling with the revelations that its late founder perverted Catholic doctrine to justify his sexual abuse of women. Aside from posing questions about how the Jesuits and the Vatican handled the evaluations and the allegations, the Rupnik scandal has prompted a broader question about what to do with his art, according to the AP. Since his mosaics, mosaics, they say in this country, decorate important basilicas, shrines, chapels, and churches around the globe, including one of the chapels inside the Apostolic Palace. Remember that show, Saturday Nights? On Friday of this week, Bishop Jean-Marc Mika, whose diocese includes Lourdes, announced the creation of a study group to consider what to do with the mosaics, placing the needs of abuse survivors first, and that itself is a first. Nothing is being ruled out, he said in a statement, except making more statements. Lourdes is a place where many victims come to seek consolation and healing. Their distress is great in front of the Reverend Rupnik's mosaics in this same place. We cannot ignore it, unquote, said that guy in a statement. In an earlier interview with French Catholic La Vie, Mika said he and the shrine had received letters from abuse victims from around the world seeking a gesture from Lourdes. They described Rupnik's mosaics there as an additional source of pain as they seek hailing and healing from their abuse. A Jesuit named Rupnik. Are you sure? Deadline Rocca di Papa, Italy. The findings of an initial expert report were astonishing. One of the 20th century's revered Catholic leaders who built an international movement of community care for people with intellectual disabilities perverted Catholic doctrine about Jesus and Mary to justify his own sexual compulsions and abuse women. The findings of a second report were even worse. The movement he created had at its core a secret mystical sexual sect and was funded for the precise purpose of hiding the sect's deviant activities from church authorities. Well, why should they? The two rounds of revelations about Jean Vanier and the L'Arche Federation he founded have rocked the group to its core, possibly because the, the core is rotten, all the more because L'Arche itself commiserated and commiserate, sorry, commissioned independent scholars to investigate after receiving a first complaint from a victim a few years before Vanier died three, uh, four years ago. It's the latest case of a Catholic giant, according to the AP, considered a living saint by his admirers and eulogized as a great Christian by Pope Francis, falling to revelations that he abused his power to sexually exploit women under his spiritual sway. Vanier, spiritual? Larsh's national and regional leaders have been meeting for the past week in the hills outside Rome. Well, that's nice. For the first time since the latest revelations to chart a path forward, now that their official 
history has been shown to be a lie, and their hero founder, Vanier, a narcissistic and delusional abuser. Got a lot of those around these days. Emotions were still raw as Larsha's most devoted staff processed the gravity of Vanier's deceptions and what it means for the organization's future, according to interviews at the retreat with the AP. Quote, I believed in something in a vision that then is revealed to you and you're told it's not like that, says the person who oversees the Larsh communities in Honduras, Mexico, and the Dominican Republic. Continuing the quote, It does frustrate me the damage it has caused to a lot of people who believed in this and then found out everything we were made to believe is a lie. Unquote. Yeah, that never happens. Vanier, a former Canadian and Royal Navy officer, founded L'Arche, that's the Arch, in 1964 in northern France. He initially invited two intellectually disabled men to live with him, then, the, then built the utopian-style Catholic-inspired community into an international movement. It's a movement, you know about those, bringing people with and without disabilities to live together in a spirit of mutual respect. It sounds like a setup, and that's just me. Born to socially prominent, religiously devout parents, his father was Governor General of Canada. Vanier arrived at his calling after having joined a spiritual community in 1950. According to the investigative reports, it was at that community that Vanier fell under uh, the spell of the founder of that community, Reverend Thomas Philippe, and was initiated, dig this, ladies and gentlemen, and was initiated into the priest's mystical sexual practices. Wouldn't you like to be initiated into those? Philippe developed his twisted theology after experiencing what he called a mystical grace one night in 1938 in Rome while looking at a fresco of the Madonna in a church atop the Spanish steps. Over time, the graces came to involve sexual gratification with women that both Philippe and Vanier justified by claiming that Jesus and Mary were involved in similarly incestuous sexual relationships. Well, that would be front page. The Vatican was informed of Philippe's deviant practices by two victims way back in 1952. Four years later, it sanctioned Philippe for false mysticism. That is, I guess, a bad thing in the church. False mysticism. The real mysticism is cool. The Vatican forbade him from public or private ministry, ordered Lovive, his community dissolved, and its members forbidden from reconstituting it. But Vanier, as well as Philippe, and the women they had manipulated, disobeyed and regularly met in secret, according to private correspondence and church archives, only recently made available to the researchers. Over time, Philippe resumed his priestly ministry as his Dominican superiors ignored the Vatican sanctions, at which time Vanier, a layman, founded L'Arche. Study Commission concluded in its January report that Vanier did so as a screen to hide the reuniting of the original Low Vive, Water of Life, group even though it was also a sincere commitment to help people who otherwise would have been institutionalized. The study commission identified at least 25 women whom Vanier abused, none of them intellectually disabled, 
Well, that's nice. It determined that Vanier and Philippe's deviant practices didn't extend beyond the core sect at the original community in northern France. Hey, let's go there. But it called for vigilance, especially in the way authority and power exercised in more than 150 communities in 37 countries. Here's good news. Larsh's leaders have apologized to the victims, thanked them for their courage in coming forward, and assumed responsibility for not having spotted the abuses earlier. You think? They say they questioned Vanier repeatedly as soon as the first victims came forward, as well as what he knew about Philippe's condemnation by the Holy Office in 1956, but he uh, lied to them. Imagine that an abuser lying. The nearly 900-page forensic history of the scandal is remarkable, according to the AP, providing perhaps the best documented case of a phenomenon that has existed in the Catholic Church for centuries, increasingly coming to the public fore. That would be spiritual charlatans using false mysticism to manipulate their victims and abuse them. Larsh was able to obtain a summary report of the 1956 trial inside the Church of Philippe. It shows that Vatican was well-versed in the dynamics of the abuse of power over women decades before the Me Too movement put it in the spotlight. But the researchers blame the Vatican's secrecy in handling the Philippe case for laying the groundwork for Larsh's scandal. They found that no one except a few Vatican and Dominican superiors knew of Philippe's deviance or his sanctions, precisely what allowed him to maintain his reputation for holiness and to rewrite history as he pleased. That's a quote. One of the Vatican's top experts in abuse prevention praised Larsh for its fearless courage in exposing the painful truth about its past and said that the phenomenon of spiritual gurus misusing their authority can't be ignored any longer by the church. I think that same phenomenon exists outside the church, too. They should check that. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of uh, the crypto winter. I don't even have the wind sound effect with me today. Please excuse me. Crypto trading farm uh, platform Beaxy, B-E-A-X-Y, Beaxy. You know, my confidence is ensured just by having a goofy name for your financial institution. Beaxy has officially closed its doors now, according to CoinDesk, as the Securities and Exchange Commission charged the company and its founder, Artak Hamasbian, with operating an unregistered exchange and brokerage, the agency said this week. The SEC also accused Beaxy Digital of illegally raising $8 million in the offering of an unregistered security with its BXY token. That's another piece of digital so-called money. The agency additionally noted that guy, Hamaza Sprian, I'll get it right before next week, I promise, misappropriated at least $900,000 for personal use, including gambling. This gambling thing is catching on. Windy Incorporated, another name you can trust, took over the platform in 2019 after the founder misappropriated money, according to the SEC. 
and uh, a couple of managers maintained Bixi for trading crypto assets that were offered and sold as securities, the SEC. So the agency is also accusing them of violating securities law by operating an unregistered exchange, broker, and clearing agency. Though the platform was described as defunct in another SEC case last year. Quote, when a crypto intermediary combines all of these functions under one roof, investors are at serious risk, said the enforcement chief of the SEC, adding the blurring of functions and the lack of registrations meant that regulations designed to prevent uh, protect investors were not followed or even recognized by Beeksy, unquote. Well, I don't recognize Beeksy. The exchange posted on its website it was suspending its operations because of the, quote, uncertain regulatory environment surrounding our business, unquote. The SEC statement doesn't mention that Beeksy closed on an agreement in federal court with Wendy and the people associated with that company. The agreement included returning all assets to customers and destroying any of the BXY token in Wendy's possession. Customers of the exchange will be able to withdraw their assets within 24 hours after all user orders are canceled and balances are verified and are encouraged to do so within 30 days, according to the SEC. And what about Sam uh, Bankman-Fried? Federal prosecutors tacked on a 13th criminal charge against him this week, accusing the co-founder of FTX of bribing one or more Chinese government officials with $40 million worth of cryptocurrency. Bet it's not worth that now. In the indictment, prosecutors allege that Bankman-Fried sought to pay off Chinese officials in an effort to unfreeze accounts belonging to his hedge fund. Alameda Research, the accounts which the Chinese government had frozen, held more than $1 billion worth of digital assets, prosecutors say. Bet they're not worth that now. The accounts were released after the payment was transferred from uh, Sam Bankman fraud, uh, Sam's main trading account to a private cryptocurrency wallet, according to the indictment. And it's a wallet only in the sense that um, this stuff is currency. Also, uh, this week, a judge approved new bail conditions for Bankman-Fried that will severely restrict his Internet access following concerns about his past use of messaging apps and a virtual private network. He'll be allowed access to two electronic devices, a closely monitored laptop, and a phone that can only be used for voice calls and texts. Can't use anything else. The laptop is largely under his legal team's control, and Bankman Fried will be restricted to a handful of news sites and services such as Netflix, DoorDash, and Gmail. The charges against Bankman Fried stem from what prosecutors have characterized as one of the biggest financial frauds in U.S. history. Three of his Business partners have pleaded guilty to numerous charges and are cooperating with investigators. If convicted on all counts, he could face more than 155 years in prison. He's currently under his house arrest at his parents' home in Palo Alto, where his movements are heavily restricted. So I'm personally feeling sorry for him. And one of the major 
Ethereum bots has been targeted in an attack. Ethereum is another, quote, cryptocurrency, unquote. The attack is apparently by one of the blockchain's, blockchain's validators, this according to Coindesk, resulting in the loss of almost $20 million. MEV is an acronym for Maximal Extractable Value, which is the method validators use to try to maximize their profits when they validate transactions by including, excluding, or changing the order of transactions in a block. The block, of course, is the base basic unit of the blockchain. The attack happened all within one Ethereum block with a blockchain auditor saying a validator appeared to force a series of transactions into the block to steal funds the blot, the bot had planned to gain by front-running. I know it's too much, too much jargon to uh, really process. The attack has the potential to transform the ecosystem because MEV extractors will wonder which Ethereum validators are malicious. Really? There's maliciousness in all this? They use a technique called sandwich attacks to steal value from users. This is a, ma a malicious way of manipulating the underlying price of the asset so the bot can steal the price difference from the user. And... Um, as if that's not enough, there is this. Bitcoin price nears uh, $23,000 in fresh five-month high. It's reported this week. But uh, observers in the crypto community are not sure whether that's a sign of uh, the assets, so-called, are going back to their previous high value and continuing their rise from there, or whether it's, and they, they, here they borrow an old term from the financial community, whether it's just a dead cat bounce. Depressing, hard to shake free of our cares. Couldn't buy my car on credit. Baby was selling her shares. Guys in suits were on my TV meeting just to say they'd met. Then, just when it seemed the darkest, here comes the best news yet. They were doing the dead cat bounce, just watching the big bulls pounce. When only one day counts. That's when you do the dead cat bounce. You know, two days later we were sliding right back into the hole. Red arrows pointed downward, warnings blacker than coal. Baby was pruning her Christmas list. eBay had my guitar. Sure didn't feel like dancing Till we heard this noise from afar They were doing the dead cat bounce 
Stocks rising up, seen amounts. Only in my dream account. Ooh, we do the dead cat bounce. One day wonders and shooting stars. Instant karma and mini bars. Now it's here, now it's gone. Only thing growing is my neighbor's lawn. Scuffling for groceries, babies hooking for rent. The checks they say were in the mail, but the mail was never sent. You can bounce a dead cat forever, but it's only gonna go up once. Everybody's a genius, till everybody's a dunce. They were doing the dead cat bounce, sipping deep from fantasy spouts. They were buying hope by the ounce. Hey, we're doing the dead cat bounce. Let's all do the dead cat bounce. Sad reality, we'll all trounce. Even while the misery mounts, we'll be doing the dead cat. The dead cat. The dead cat bounce. From New Orleans, this is Le Show, and now. News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole, the third. A proposed French law for the 2024 Paris Olympics that critics contend will open the door for privacy-busting video surveillance tech in France and elsewhere in Europe passed an important hurdle this week Lawmakers overwhelmingly voted for it. The bill will legalize the temporary use of so-called intelligence surveillance systems to safeguard the Paris Games next year and the Paralympics that follow. The systems combine cameras with artificial intelligence software to flag potential security concerns such as abandoned packages or crowd surges. Human operators would decide whether action is needed. French authorities insist the surveillance wouldn't involve facial recognition. I know you. I know you. Supporters of the bill argue that the technology could help avert disasters, like the deadly crowd crush that killed nearly 160 people during Halloween festivities in South Korea in October. Yeah, it's like France. It's not about recognizing Mr. X in a crowd, said the interior minister. It's about recognizing situations. He said. The uh, draft is now slated for further fine-tuning by assembly members and senators before its final adoption, expected later this month. Digital rights watchdog groups argue that France will violate international human rights law by becoming the first of the European Union's 27 countries to legalize AI-powered surveillance, even if just temporarily. It's called... uh, an experimental basis to safeguard sporting and cultural events in France that are particularly at risk of being targeted by terror attacks. The technologies use, quote, risks permanently transforming France into a dystopian surveillance state. Now, if you ask me, it's about time. An Amnesty International advisor 
says it's also been well documented that hostile surveillance technologies are disproportionately, disproportionately used to target marginalized groups, including migrants and black and brown people. The draft law says the cameras won't use facial recognition. They're still liable to scrutinize physical traits, including people's postures, walks, and gestures. That's what the critics say. And organizers fear the private firms will not be able to recruit the over 20,000 civilian staff needed to man Olympic security in time, putting pressure on the army to fill in the gaps. This is from Agence France Press. Like past Olympic host nations, France plans to deploy soldiers for securing the summer games, but army and government sources have been told, have told AFP, they fear the forces being overstretched that's right, overstretching the Army at the Olympics. It's completely illogical for the armed forces to contribute to Olympic security, said the Chief of Defense Staff. Given that it's an exceptional event, there can be an exceptional contribution. The real question is planning ahead, he says. Organizers fear private firms will not be able to recruit the over 20,000 civilian staff needed Man Olympic security in time. But it's the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the uh, issue of microplastics comes before us again, yet again. A new study suggests microplastics found in food packaging can pass to human tissue through blood vessels. Well, I, I, I'm sorry. I blame the blood vessels. Well, what the hell are they? The research conducted by the University of Hull and Hull York Medical School shows two of the five microplastic polymer types that were found in the human veins came from food packaging. Well, I did the darndest thing. The first food packaging-based polymer was polyvinyl acetate, an adhesive found in food packaging, shipping boxes, bags, and binders for paper, plastics, and foils. It's also described as being one of the main ingredients of wood glue. They need to keep wood together, but has a recent biomedical use in DNA drug delivery. The second was nylon and EVOH EVA, which the scientists explained is used to bond plastic polymers to create flexible packaging materials with blends optimized to improve their characteristics, such as helping to prevent moisture intrusion or tensile qualities. Applications are said to include many uses from food packaging and lamination to multi-layer pipe wire and cable. Come on, we're living the dream small pilot study was based on researchers analyzing human saphenous vein tissue taken from patients undergoing heart bypass surgery, as well as they're not suffering enough. Microplastics, ladies and gentlemen, they are us. And now, why it's the Apologies of the Week.
on uh, a Wednesday a few weeks ago, a white Mississippi news anchor for WBT named Barbie Bassett, I'm just reading him, I'm not writing him, recited Snoop Dogg's popular catchphrase, for shizzle my nizzle, on air. The commentary was in reference to a story about the Death Row Records owner's latest business venture, apparently a wine called Snoop Cali Blanc. Enough of this guy already? No. Uh, fellow anchor Wilson Stribling joked that a colleague may get a Snoop Dogg-inspired tattoo following the likes of Martha Stewart, to which Bassett replied, for shizzle, my nizzle. Meteorologist Patrick Ellis was visibly stunned after that utterance. Weeks later, according to a local newspaper, Bassett may have been fired due to the racially insensitive remarks. The colloquialism is common African-American vernacular English. It translates to, for sure, my N-word. This isn't the first instance where Bassett has had to apologize for a racial comment. She was reprimanded back in October of last year after calling her black colleague's grandmother a grandmammy. Live on air, Bassett later issued an apology. Though not intentional, I now understand how my comment was both insensitive and hurtful. I have apologized to Carmen Poe, my colleague. Now I would like to apologize to you. That is not the heart of who I am, and for that I humbly ask for your forgiveness, and I apologize to anyone I have offended. I will learn from this and participate in training so I can better understand our history and our people. I can't mend the hurt my comment caused. I'll pray you forgive me and that you'll extend grace through this awful mistake, unquote. Local newspaper reports now that Bassett is no longer listed as part of the station's news team. That, this just out. A day after Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont insulted downtown Houston upon his return home to New England for a visit for the NCAA National Championship, he's apologized. Mayor Sylvester Stern, uh, Turner of Houston said he accepted a phone call and an apology from Lamont and had a good conversation with the second-term Democratic governor. The previous day, Lamont went on two Connecticut radio programs and called downtown Houston, quote, but ugly and, for good measure, God-forsaken. Even God can't stand but ugly. For months, a Florida principal believed she was exchanging online messages with Elon Musk, she said at a school board meeting. Jared McGee trans trusted her online friend, so she wrote to them, him, them, a $100,000 check from school funds in hopes of receiving future donations, according to conversations from the board meeting. However, she said she soon learned, learned she was being tricked by someone impersonating Musk. Why, was he offering her some $30 beer? This is from the Washington Post. She publicly apologized this week, saying she made a mistake, but after backlash from parents and administrators at the uh, school in Oak Hill, Florida, she resigned. Some of the school's administrators had threatened to quit if McGee did not step down. So don't be, don't be sending money to a fake Elon Musk. Send it to the real guy. He, he really needs it. Dayline Syracuse, New York. 
man who spent 16 years in prison after he was wrongfully convicted of raping writer Alice Siebold when she was a Syracuse University student, has settled a lawsuit against New York State for five and a half million dollars. Comes after Anthony Broadwater's conviction for raping Siebold in 1981 was er overturned two years ago. Signed last week by lawyers for the guy and New York Attorney General Letitia James, who right now has her hands full with the Trump thing. Broadwater said, I appreciate what the Attorney General has done. I hope and pray that others in my situation can achieve the same measure of justice. We all suffer from destroyed lives. Obviously, no amount of money can erase the injustice Mr. Broadwater suffered, but the settlement now officially acknowledges them, said Siebold in a statement released through a spokesperson. She uh, wrote the lovely bones. Where is the apology? Oh, police arrested Broadwater, who was given the pseudonym Gregory Madison in Lucky, the book Siebold wrote about the uh, rape. But she failed to identify him in a police lineup, picking a different man as her attacker. Nonetheless, Broadwater was no, uh, tried and convicted into 1982 after Siebold identified him as her rapist on the witness stand. And an expert said micro, or microscopic hair analysis, uh, analysis had tied Broadwater to the crime. That type of analysis has since been deemed junk science by the U.S. Department of Justice. The current district attorney for Onondaga County, where uh, that trial happened, noted that witness identifications, particularly across racial lines, are often unreliable. He was convicted for a crime he never committed, and he was incarcerated despite his innocence. While we cannot undo the wrongs from more than four decades ago, the settlement agreement is a critical step to deliver some semblance of justice to Mr. Broadwater, said uh, Letitia James, the state district attorney general. Broadwater has also filed a civil rights lawsuit against the county. Siebold, the author, apologized to Broadwater in a statement released to the Associated Press. As a traumatized 18-year-old rape victim, I chose to put my faith in the American legal system. My goal in 1982 was justice, not to participate in justice, and certainly not to forever and irreparably alter a young man's life. Unquote. That's her apology. And finally, a Greenwood, Indiana man accused of illegally, illegally entering the U.S. Capitol on January 6th will not serve any prison time. Eric Cantrell pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor count of parading and demonstrating or picketing in a Capitol building. He was sentenced by the judge to three months of probation and 40 hours of community service. And uh, he apologized. Nice of him to do that. I think we're all grateful. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. Back next week at the same time on these same radio stations or whenever you want it on your audio device of choice. And it'll be just like hot air does not delay gravity. If you would agree to join with me then, would you? Already, thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego desk, to Pam Halstead, and to uh, Garrett Pittman here at WWNO New Orleans for their help with today's program. The email address for this program, along with your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts before we forget what they are, and, uh, and the playlist of the music heard here, as well as a lot of stuff to read and watch and enjoy and forget, all at harryshearer.com. And I'm, yeah, I know, I'm still on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. Trying to figure out where to go next. The show comes to you from Century of Progress production and, uh, Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the Crescent City.